This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Cuckoo Kachoo. I want to thank my friends, one of my favorite bands, The Cramps, for writing that song about their favorite wrestling podcast, Stick to Wrestling. This is the only rookie good podcast out there. Sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts, but are there any wicked good ones? There's only one, and you're listening to it. Stick to wrestling. Give us 60 minutes, and perhaps, indeed, we will give you a raw bone wrestling podcast. And with that, I want to bring on my convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you today? Outstanding. And let me, uh, well, we have more serious news coming up, uh, but let me uh, kind of briefly go over our Facebook page, which, again, if you're listening, you really should be there, too, because it's just an addition to what we do here. And if you, you know, haven't joined yet, well, first of all, we'd like to wish Buddy Colt a happy birthday. Uh, he just turned 80. He, uh, I believe on Tuesday, had his birthday. But if you come into the Facebook page, you get to find out who Bob Backlund beat. You get to find out uh, what would the Road Warriors have to do to turn heel in the mid-80s. I had a wonderful uh, idea. <laughs> are the Tennessee guys on the page gloating a little? Tennessee a little. Titans guys, not the Tennessee Vols guys. No, they the Tennessee Titans guys, yes. I'm the guys from Tennessee. Is Terry Garvin trying to hypnotize people with his shirt? And Mighty Joe Thunder used to be who? That plus our uh, updates from YouTube, uh, John's results uh, from all over the world, and uh, you know so much more than that, and a bunch of good guys too. Definitely, and this show comes out. Uh, it's being released on Friday, January the 17th. Speaking of birthdays, two guys who had kind of ancillary instant. Outside of the wrestling business, wrestling careers, Muhammad Ali and Andy Kaufman share that birthday, January 17th. With that, I would like to bring on our guest. I've been dying to have this guy on the show. He has his own show on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mike Sempervivi. Mike, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me on, and I like the way that you described your podcast this week as being raw-boned. It's a nice ode to being the Sweet Hansen of podcasts. Sweet Hansen, a character that I am semi-familiar with as we enter 1982 on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, ah. the podcast where we review WWE Network-sponsored uh, and, and, and their version of Mid-Atlantic Championship wrestling podcasts or, 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 or shows. As I've screwed this entire opening up, trying to be smooth, trying to get you to listen to the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, but you know what? My other podcast is called The Big Audio Nightmare, and you can see why. <laughs> hey, you fit right in if you can introduce the show properly. That's you know, There's nothing like doing radio when you don't have a grasp of the English language or diction. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm perfect for it. So, yes, I, I stumble on here as I, I stumble on all of the shows, and I really appreciate you letting me stumble on this one today. Hey, did did thank just, you for having me on. Did we just could call it the Sweet Hands of Podcasts? I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, I think we have a, 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 we say perhaps indeed. So maybe not, perhaps. <laughs> Let's just forget all about that. We're, we're the podcast with the ugly blue singlet and the, and the dumb Civil War hat. That's us. And, and, and the vetting in North Attleboro. The slight <laughs> baggage of the, under the eyes uh, coming with it there, yes. That's our podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Now, on a, a, much, a much more somber note, just a couple of hours before we started recording, we learned of the passing of Rocky Johnson. And I just want to share this with you. Like, I came home, I opened my email, and Yahoo had Rocky Johnson's passing as its main story. Not its main sports story, but its main story. And, of course, it's because he's The Rock's dad. And, I mean, Rocky Johnson was a lot more than just The Rock's dad. I mean, I don't think... He's a Wrestling Observer Hall of Famer, but he's the next category down. He main evented everywhere in the 70s. He was a legit contender for the NWA title. When he was in the WWF, he had big but kind of forgotten feuds with both Magnificent Morocco and Roddy Piper. And they were kind of forgotten because as soon as Rocky's feud was over, in both cases, both those guys went on to feud with Jimmy Snuka. So those became the legendary feuds, and Rockies kind of became forgotten, but they were a big deal when they were happening. And in my opinion, either Crockett or Watts should have brought him in after his WWF run. I think he, that was over like September or October 85. I mean, 
he was in his early 40s. I saw him in Memphis in 1987. He still looked good. He didn't look like an old man. So I think it was an opportunity missed. But RIP to a favorite of mine, Rocky Johnson. Uh, Sean, anything you'd like to say about Rocky Johnson? Sure. One thing is that Rocky Johnson is the answer, one of my answers to a question we're about to have later on in our, for our uh, upcoming mailbag here. But yeah, this by even if you just know his WWF work, that isn't enough because by the late seventies, this guy may have been in some kind of consideration for the NWA title. The reason I say this is because within a two to three year stretch, he held the Southern Belt in Memphis, the Georgia Belt, and the Florida Belt, and I believe he held a belt in Mid Atlantic too. This is all within seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven, right in there. Yeah, and um, he was he was a main eventer in Los Angeles. He was a main eventer in Portland. He main eventer Houston, Dallas. He was a big deal. I mean, you say he's you know borderline Hall of Fame. I'm not sure. I'm I I'm kind of looking at this resume, and I mean, he had to be within serious. Uh, you know, I'm I'm guessing a couple of guys may have tossed out having Rocky Johnson as an NWA champion. Did that discussion ever happen? Probably not because of the the time and the and the color of the guy's skin. That's just the way the oh. wrestling business was. I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not the, the time. I, I'm just I, I understand that, but I'm looking at the time too. His big day was like seventy eight, seventy nine. That may be a spot where yo, you're looking at the popularity of a Muhammad Ali, who so, Rocky kind of styled the act on, and you know Bill Watts, what he was about to do in a couple of years. Uh, you know what? I I think he could have been a successful NWA champion. I just think the, the politics at the time would have prevented it. And again, that's not me saying, yeah, I think that's what they should have done. I'm just looking at the, the stark reality of the NWA membership back then. Mike, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share on Rocky Johnson? You know, it was, the thing with Johnson was, as far as my fandom goes, because of my age, I came along at the end of his run. You know, where I remember Rocky Johnson is in the WWF. Uh, in the in the 80s, obviously, the team with Tony Atlas that when you pulled yourself away from the television and you pulled back the curtain, you found out it was as bad as, as everybody knows that relationship is. And I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about that when Rocky's book comes out, the one he's doing with Greg Oliver. That's, uh, I'm sure, covered uh, in detail in the book. Uh, I haven't seen it, so I, I, I can't speak about it, but... I'm sure that gets nice uh, coverage there. And, you know, I, I remember the, the, the he won the Turkey Battle Royal on Thanksgiving in 84. And I, you know, at the time I was right outside D.C. I, I grew up in Montgomery and Howard counties for the most part, which are sit right between Baltimore and Washington. And he was the reaction that it was even different than he would get in Baltimore. You know, the reaction that that Rocky Johnson would get in D.C. was something special. He was. Their guy, he was billed from Washington, D.C. He was a star there. So he got a little bit of a special reaction. And I don't know, you know, at that time, if who he was feuding with all up and down. I know Roddy Piper and obviously with Orndorff and and David Schultz. I do remember him being tied up there. Now, I don't know if he wrestled Big John Studd up and down the, 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 the East Coast at that time. I know he was tied in with him. But that my memories of Tony Atlas mostly are there. And then everything else has been called from videotapes, you know, going back and seeing him with Jerry Lawler in Memphis, uh, hearing, you know, different stories and then seeing him in different places, whether being with the mask, you know, ridiculously is sweet ebony diamond in mid Atlantic and no matter where you went, uh, his presence was large and he was always figured in and he was always a big deal in the mix. But as far as actually seeing him in person, you know, I caught him at the very, very end there, uh, when he was tied in with Vince. I actually saw a match between Rocky Johnson and big John stud, Late 84, I want to say at the Providence Civic Center. And by that time, Rocky's push was gone. He was just a, another face in the crowd. Like after the Piper feud ended, like I'm not saying his career ended, but that was kind of the end of him doing anything significant, which I, I've never understood. I mean, to this day, Crockett could have used him. Watts definitely could have used him. Before uh, Dwayne became a big star, I read a, an interview with Rocky Johnson where he was saying, yeah, you know, I I put my whole life into the wrestling business and here I am living in a $400 a month apartment outside of Miami. I've got nothing left. And, you know, you would think the guy wanted to wrestle, but it just didn't happen. I don't, I don't know why, but I will check out. The, Greg Oliver put out a, a large article on Rocky Johnson 
which I have not had the chance to read, but I will. But anyway, today we are doing another mailbag episode. It is absolutely one of my favorite types of show because basically I don't have to think of anything to talk about. You guys can think of it for me. Sean, let me hand the ball off to you. All right, same rule about pronunciation goes. So we'll go start off question one. And uh, just to say, I was having a heart attack leading up to this because I'm like, we're leaving the guys too little time. You know, we, John put the question up with like five hours. Within 30 minutes, we had all of them. So we again, great job. First guy out, and these are in order. Jesus Salas Rodriguez, tell me about an angle wrestler or storyline that made you legit mad or sad. Now, I clarified. This could either be because you emotionally got involved with it because it was a good angle or because it was just so like an insult to your intelligence. What do you got, John? I, I went with ones that, you know, didn't I didn't insult my intelligence. Uh, I went with two. OK, number one. And you're going to think you're dealing with a real psychopath. Where will I tell you about this one? Once again, we're talking about Sweet Hansen. When Bob Backlund was wrestling Sweet Hansen on TV, I want to say September or October 1982. Um, and Superstar came out, Superstar Billy Graham came out and destroyed the WWF Championship belt. I was so angry watching this that I had a hard time getting to sleep after the show was over. Ended at like one in the morning. I went home and I was like so revved up that, that Graham had the audacity to destroy the WWF Championship belt that I, I, I was that mad I couldn't get to sleep. Another one was the whole Magnum TA versus Mr. Wrestling 2 storyline from 1984. I saw it three or four years after it happened, and I was I was pissed at Mr. Wrestling 2 for being such a jerk. I was like yelling at the TV, Magnum, mess this guy up. Show him where, you know, show him where where his place is. And you know, I'm I'm smart to the business and the whole nine yards and the storyline dragged me in that much. Sean, what's your what's your opinion on this? You made me think of one um, going with the Intercontinental belt when Greg Valentine busted the IC belt after losing it to Tito Santana. I want to say it was 84. That was 84. It was a cage match and Greg busted it against the cage and then the whole thing was messed up. I think that may have been the belt that was used as a hardcore title or later on. <laughs> uh, but seriously, but T, uh, Tito held up the belt, busted belt. Yeah, I was I hated Greg for years after that. Wow. Uh, another one was the ones I actually wrote down were in 85. OK, I was 10 years old is my excuse when they busted Dusty's leg. OK, granted, they kind of went a little far with it. But in the early days, right when it happened in the cage. OK, I bought in. I was 10. Sue me. And the last one, and uh, I saw this one later, and I still got sucked in. I still say it's the best hour I've seen of just old-school studio wrestling. The 1986 Memphis episode when Dundee and uh, Buddy go crazy and have uh, Jeff, a very young Jeff Jarrett stretched out. I remember that. That was a great angle. And by the way, I agree with you. You, know, you have to apologize for being 10 years old. I mean, Dusty Rhodes came into that cage to help Ric Flair, who was being double-teamed. And what does he get in return? A broken leg. I hated the Andersons, too. I, I mean, Rick, I was kind of because Rick was kind of cool. And he was at the time he was against Nikita. So, I mean, but I hated the Andersons. They were oh, just the they were like totally. They were just evil. Yeah, they were just evil. I, I agree with you. Mike, how about how about your answer? An angle store or storyline that got you legit mad or sad? Oh, man. God, hey. One of which, which happened way later on, and you talk about being embarrassed over one, the NWO, the constant burial of Ric Flair. I remember when that started, oh. that legitimately always just irked me because I was one of those people that came, you know, you had friends that, that had the big dish in the yard. So they grew up with Georgia Championship Wrestling and grew up watching Mid-Atlantic and the evolution of everything and stuck through all those horrifying times of the Jim Hurd era and the sale to Turner and, you know, it was still there. And I was, you know, graduating high school in 94. So in the college scene, drinking, having a good time. And here's this boom of wrestling that starts, you know, over the Monday night wars, people having nitro parties. And it's basically another excuse to get hammered on Monday, especially if the football game isn't any good. <laughs> and you're sitting here and you're watching this stuff and you're watching your childhood memories just get hammered away. And you're smart enough to know why. 
and and you're still a fan. Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, you know, I was obviously smart to what was going on, but I was never a newsletter, hardcore newsletter person, or a tape trader in that scene or anything like that. So, you know, to see a lot of this stuff kind of play out, I was still, you know, I was still more of a fan than than certainly what I am now. You know, <laughs> things kind of it, it, it reversed here a little bit. But, you know, the, the fan I was at the time, you know, it just plucked my nerves because I was smart enough to know what was taking place. But I was still enough of a fan to have it affect me where it was just driving me nuts to see just constantly over and over again, getting my intelligence insulted. And that would drive me nuts. And one of the reasons why is, is because I became a fan in the emotional years of the 80s where, you know, like Sean with Dusty Rhodes, me for me, one of the times where I was actually really pissed off was was Bob Geigel suspending Magnum TA. I mean, the man's mother was insulted. He gets jumped at a table. Now, granted, in hindsight, you look back and you go, man, what'd you bring your mother to the, the whole thing for? And you probably deserve to get smacked around for that. But look, <laughs> at the time, the man is, is defending his family, and you are now getting in his face saying he's going to be censured or whatever the, the it was. He was going to be reprimanded. Officially reprimanded. Officially reprimanded by the NWA in front of that ridiculous, like, you know, the 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 tinsel that they had hanging up in Kansas City, you know, for their TV set. I'm glad he punched that four-eyed egghead. And and good for him. And that was, again, just off the top of my head. Those are two examples. But, you know, I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate now for it was because of growing up being so passionate about it then. And that was one example. I mean, Baby Doll getting drilled with the, the tennis racket was another one because that was, a you know, the Midnight Express. There were a, a bunch of those heavy heat type of angles, and, and this, uh, those are a couple that come to my mind. You know, I sometimes I say to myself, man, I wish I had paid more attention to the Monday Night Wars when they were going on. I wish I had just bit the bullet and watched Nitro every Monday night. And that what you said about Ric Flair is a reminder of why I didn't, because why spend two or three hours watching a show that does nothing but, but make me, it made me mad. At the end, like I was just pissed off at the world when Nitro was ending, and I was like, why am I doing this? So I, I made the right call. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no reason to frustrate yourself like that. There was, and, and I, you know, it's funny. It, there were people that, I talked to years later, uh, there was a guy, Rich Tate, who did a lot. It was the Georgia Wrestling History website, and we he had a podcast for a while and had a little network of stuff that he was doing, and he had a, a show with Les Thatcher, and I would hang out with and do that show, and Mike Mooneyham would be on too, and, and I would talk to Rich, and Rich hadn't watched wrestling since, basically, it was before the Nitro era and before the Monday Night Wars era had begun, and he had you know, kind of seen a little of it, but he was done. And it was like, man, I, I can't imagine just being done, you know, watching wrestling, and now here I am where it's like, man, you know, sometimes if this wasn't my job, I don't know yep. if I would do this. And, you know, to, to basically, I mean, he would say it. It's like, you know, why did I want to see my memories get defecated on? Why did I want to see all this stuff get that I loved so much have dirt kicked on it? One, because of just the evolutionary way of wrestling. And two, because they're going out of their way to do it, you know, yeah. and it's and I, and I get that. And, 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 you know, I watched a lot of those nitros at the time, again, because of my age and because what was going on. I mean. We were college age. We were partying. We had other interests going on, stuff like that. So some of that stuff you shook off. You look back, you know, with with hindsight and with twenty twenty vision on what the nineties were like and what ECW, you know, what some of the real legacy was out of a lot of that stuff that you know gets so celebrated. And frankly, it's not very good. No, it isn't. And I mean, you know, I I can't I can't agree more that you know why watch something if, if it just irritates you. Rich Tate is a really good guy. I haven't heard from him in forever. I hope he's doing well. Yeah, same here. And I, I hope he really is, too. I mean, he had this he did a was one of those guys early on that, you know, are really we're, we're seeing him get celebrated now. And it's a subject for a different day as far as like, you know, a lot of the, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Should there be, you know, people like the the Terry Justices of the world now that Bill Apter's in, do you start looking at, at a lot of people, Norm Kitesers and, and stuff like that. But you know, he's one of those guys that, you know, in his little way of, of trying to save results and mine research and create newsletters and do that sort of stuff, you know, his work early on, you know, hopefully gets uh, continued to be recognized. One of those guys that's hopefully doesn't fall too, through the cracks too much. 
No, I mean, you know, wrestling research, I have a ton of respect for guys who do that stuff. I mean, you know, it, it, just, doesn't, it doesn't just grow out of the ground. It, it takes real work, and, you know, guys like that are, are definitely appreciated. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Kenyon's a Hall of Famer. You know, the guys, the Kitesers, you know, there, there's just there's so many names, even like your Clawmaster, Jim Zordan, all of those people. Yeah, maybe it's not a full Hall of Fame thing, but as far as being recognized and, and having them be noted, I mean, again, because we couldn't be really talking about a lot of this stuff if it wasn't for, for people like that and Yohei and everybody down the line. I agree 100%. Sean, what's our next question? From Dominic Violi. And yeah, this is uh, my answer to this was. Before what happened, uh, the news broke. Um, of all the African-American wrestlers uh, Bill Watts brought in to replace JYD, Reed doesn't count, which who was already in the territory, who do you think had the, probably the best chance to be the main eventer Watts wanted, or is there another African-American wrestler out there who could have been brought in instead? All right, JYD left Mid-South for the WWF summer of 1984, and by that point, Tony Atlas was either done in the WWF or was about to be done in the WWF. And Bill Watts has come out and said multiple times he liked Tony Atlas a lot. So he's my clear number one. If I had to bring in a little bit of a long shot, they brought in Brickhouse Brown, but they never really pushed him. Um, I think he had a little bit of a ceiling. You know, Clearly, Tony Atlas had a higher ceiling than Brickhouse Brown, but I thought Brickhouse Brown was really pushable. So th- those are my answers. Sean, what do you think? I would have said one is Tony Atlas was the first because I'm doing the math in my head. I knew he was out of the loop by WrestleMania one because they dropped him from the card. And the the beauty of it is you don't have to worry about them bringing them back. You already got rid of him once. True. So you can bring you know, you don't have to worry about the JYD thing happening. And the other was Rocky Johnson because he would have left right around the same time. I mean, I know he was a little older, but not that much older. He would have been at that point, probably late 30s. Uh, early forties. And the problem with Rocky Johnson, the only problem with Rocky Johnson is he was with the WWF. I want to say until like fall of 1985, but perhaps you could have lured him in with the promise of a big push, which by the time JYD left, you know, Rocky was just another face in the crowd. Boy, this, this is tough. (laughs) It's a tough show, Mike. It, it, well, you know, you think it, it really because I, I was a big fan of Brookhouse Brown. So I like Brookhouse Brown. And I agree with you that, you know, if if packaged a little bit differently, if, if sold a little bit differently, maybe you could have gotten more legs there. But, with, you know, with it not being Butch Reed, it's like, well, you had the snowman, Master G, Coco Ware, you know, Lad at that point, you know, Norvell Austin was was there. Porkchop Cash, had, you know, was there at, at one point, you know, King so Crosses. it's like, well, who's. Well, it's like, well, who's left? You know, Skip Young, Pez Watley, Tiger Conway. And then it's the obvious answers, at least I would think, which would be either Tony Atlas or Rocky Johnson. And my answer would have probably been Tony Atlas. Would he have lasted there? No. You know, if you take out, you know, all the variables uh, and knowing what you know about the territory, I mean, even Rocky Johnson, would he be willing to go down there even on top? to put up with all of the headache of those rides and everything else at that point in his life being screamed at by Watts. I, I don't know. You know, he would have had a good group around him. It would have been a good work experience, probably seemingly night after night, but it would have been some really, really long nights. So I would say either Atlas or Rocky Johnson. And I would probably, because you know Johnny said that the Rocky was under contract at the time, you know, I would probably lean towards Tony Atlas being that guy and, and frankly, even more than Rocky Johnson in this way, we know it didn't work down there. So it was going to have to be, you know, some sort of lightning strike and moving he- heaven and earth. And I don't know who else could have done that besides Tony Atlas, who would have been out there. Yeah, I, I mean, we you mentioned uh, Master G, uh, George Wells. I couldn't believe how bad he was. I mean, this is a guy who was a good enough athlete to play football at Grambling and he just could not figure out the wrestling business. And he had been in the wrestling business for a while by this point. And I, you know, you you, I look back, I remember first watching the tape and watching this guy beat Ted DiBiase and beat Butch Reed. I was just, I was just outraged. And it was obvious what was going on and what Watts was trying to do. And I understand it, but man, he was a bad choice. One quick thing about uh, Rocky, I was sitting there thinking about that, about going to, at that stage of his career, going to uh, Watts. Could it be that he may have almost found that refreshing? 
because I know he was very frustrated with Tony and he was, I, I don't know how he felt about the WWF overall, but that kind of more of an old school style, I, I don't know, on top, do you think he, that may have been something that he may have, I don't know, wanted, but may have tolerated? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll throw my two cents here and say, you know what? I bet you for maybe a couple of months, then maybe. But then I bet you he's just standing there one day and looks east and goes, man, I could be in Pensacola right now, home every night. You know what I mean? And maybe, you know, looking at what Continental was, what was happening with Southeastern at that time, you know, with the because, again, I'm not sure who who was the big I guess it would have been Porkchop at the time, you know, after Sonny King. I'm trying to think of who would have been down there as a an African-American star. So there was a, a, a void to fill there. You know, around that time, because then Chop would be out of there, I guess, and up in Memphis after that, and then back around to Mid South. So, I, you know, I, I to me, it may have been something that would have been okay for a while, maybe, and just kind of got recentered again. But I don't, I just wonder if it would have been a long term thing at that point. I mean, Sonny King was a guy who disappeared in the mid seventies, reappeared in Florida as a manager in nineteen seventy nine. And there they were five five years after that trying to push Sonny King, and Sonny King was unpushable at that point. In he was my in Memphis. In, he was in Memphis in '79. They wouldn't even let him in the ring. I, I think he had some matches. I know, you know, he had a heart attack, so there's a reason why he maybe can't okay go, but because he was quote suspended, but he was building this worldwide army with a basis of Memphis, Tennessee, clearly. Uh, a worldwide army to take over the wrestling world. Well, was that after he was stabbed and needed work again? It probably was. And wh- yeah, where did he get stabbed? I mean, not the body part, but like what city? South Carolina? Was It It was in mid-Atlantic, I think. It okay. was, I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was when he was in mid-Atlantic. This is where the whole Sergeant Danny Davis thing comes in, because Danny was the actual guy who did the work. Okay, because, yeah, that, that happened like 74, 75 when he was at Mid- Mid-Atlantic. So maybe this is all adding up, but bottom line is, I mean, Sonny King did not look the part and could not play the part in 1984. I'm sorry. Uh, Sean, what's our next question? From Aaron Cushman, the best and worst venue you've ever seen a wrestling event at. Okay, when it comes to being a wrestling fan, I am lucky. I have been to so many great venues. Uh, I wish I could have been to more, but I mean, I got to go to the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. I got to go to Madison Square Garden in New York. Uh, My favorite, I'm going to say Boston Garden. I know that's very homeristic of me, but the atmosphere in the Boston Garden was just electric. I mean, those fans were crazy back in the Bob Backlund era. Even in the early Hogan era, I mean, it was just different. There was something, I guess there's something in the water up here. I don't know. The worst, and I don't think I've ever, I'll say my least favorite. I don't think I've ever told this story on the show before. In April of 81, the WWF had a fundraising show right here in Nashua, New Hampshire at Bishop Girton High School, which is the rival high school of Nashua High School. And about 100 kids, including me, some obnoxious Nashua High kids, show up there and start chanting BG sucks every like five minutes. So that was my least favorite building because, hey, there are rivals. The worst building I have ever gone to, it, it's one of the two. It's either uh, it was in Xavier University, the Schmidt Field House, where in, that's in Cincinnati, where I went in 2000. It was in in May, and it's Cincinnati, so it's not like, you know, we're in Louisiana. And it was so hot in that building, I was completely covered in sweat by the end of the night. I had people passing out around me, and it was was like an old barn. It sucked. But in the end, I would say the worst is the old Worcester Auditorium in Massachusetts. It was a dumpy building in the middle of of the worst part of a dumpy town, and it smelled like urine. Sean, what's your um, favorite building I, and worst building? Uh, I'll start with the worst, and I'm going to take your best. I love the garden for basketball. I love the garden for hockey. I love the garden for boxing. I love the garden for everything else other than wrestling. It's just, it, I, you're great. You're right about the crowds. The crowds are awesome, and they were the best part about it. 
the problem was that they could never seem to figure out the seating issue. If the seats were on the floor, forget about it. You forget could not see it. a thing. If your seats were too high up for the mezzanine, you might as well bring a telescope with you. So you had a, there was like a small window of seats that you had to get to have see anything. The other worst is just because I have to put it in as the worst in everything is Schaefer Stadium because it was the worst stadium in history. There are high school stadiums in Florida and Texas that are worse, uh, that are better than uh, Schaefer Stadium. You know what? You may have changed my worst. I went to a show <laughs> at, at old Sullivan Stadium that was an absolute nightmare, but at least it didn't, it didn't smell like urine. Mike, how about you? <laughs> Is it possible that the the best one could be the worst one with the Baltimore Arena slash Civic Center slash Royal Farms Arena? I don't know. Uh, it, it was that was the building I've seen the most shows at. Uh, I have seen. Georgia Championship Wrestling there, which I can really don't remember as a little kid in 1984. And I have seen the UFC and AEW there just as recently as this year. It is a, or last year, it's a, it, it is an amazing structure. And the fact that it's still there, just a little box, there's not a whole lot of charm to it whatsoever, but there's a whole lot of history in it, including over some really riotous and, and raucous wrestling fans. And I really love that building. The Capitol Center never really had that kind of feel and being more of an NWA person, you know, going down and seeing the WWF. I mean, seeing the WWF at the arena was one thing. Seeing the WWF at the Capitol Center was just a different feel, different size building. The The acoustics were different. Uh, you know, if, I'm sure everybody's seen it before, a very high top to the thing. So the, the sound would go up into the air where is in the Baltimore arena. I mean, it was essentially a shoebox. So, and there was not a whole lot of room for anywhere where the sound could go except for right, you know, slamming right into you. So, you know, just a, a different style there. I'd probably say, you know, not to chicken out of it. The DC Armory was a, the DC Armory Starplex was a, a terrible building over there. It was adjacent to RFK Stadium. It's the only place uh, initially the Gary Jester and the NWA and the Crockett's could run. Uh, when they hit D.C., because obviously the WWF had the Capitol Center, which was north, uh, northwest of D.C., uh, northeast of D.C., they had that on lockdown and they had most of the other buildings in the city just weren't they, they weren't going to be feasible. So the, the NWA ran the armory and it was a dump and it was, you know, crappy, hot in the summertime. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think. I'm pretty sure Capitol Combat was from there. But yeah, it definitely was from there because I'm trying to think where else they would have run. So. Like, I mean, that's the only I think that's the high water mark for the, the, the show is the fact that uh, Robocop was there in 1990. So, you know, bad times. It was just not a good building whatsoever. You know, from there, I've been very lucky, you know, seeing the bash at RFK Stadium wasn't ideal. But RFK Stadium was a you know, it was a good it was a fun football stadium to go to. And from there, it's it, most of the other buildings have been knock on wood lucky. You know, it's been the spectrum and. And uh, the MCI Center, which is now the Verizon Center or whatever they call it now for the Wizards and the Caps and everything. So, you know, I've been very lucky outside of going to your high schools and such like that. Cool. You know, two quick things. I mean, number one, I, I went to the Baltimore Civic Center a few times in the 80s. Now, I always liked that building. I, I feel lucky that I got to see wrestling there. And wow, we have on the show one of like, what, 40 or 50 people that went to the bash in 1986 at RFK. <laughs> my father was just like <laughs> David Allen Co. And I'm trying to think of who actually played because we were out of there. <laughs> it was just like it was it was surreal. It was just it was so it it, it just was an, it was, I guess, on paper, the greatest idea in the world. <laughs> and it just was not it was not it, I Cincinnati and D.C. And you, you would figure they would have had a little bit more of a rap crowd. You know, in D.C., and they didn't. It was an awful crowd, and it was an awful show. And to bring it, you know, I think it was, was it Jesse Coulter and was it Delbert? Maybe Delbert Jesse Coulter and Delbert. and someone else. I, I went to the Philly show Joe in D.C. Yeah, I can't even remember now. I think, I think it may have been Jesse Coulter because she may have been going out with somebody at the time. But yeah, Delbert, I think it was Delbert. You know, and I, you know, I, I like Delbert McClinton. I, it's not that I don't like Delbert McClinton. I like some of his more like bluesy stuff than the country stuff. But regardless, you know, him playing. I remember I talked to Dusty Rhodes about this. We did an interview with him 
And he just would refuse to talk about it. Like, let's not live in the past. But I'm like, you were bringing <laughs> David Allen Coe to Philadelphia in Washington, like a city that's 90% black. I don't think they're they're going to appreciate David Allen Coe. But hey, different time. It was, you know, Dusty's grand idea. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, as a as a venue, it was it was good. It's just, you know, the, the only thing it's going to be known for is the 86 bash. And yeah, it was. Uh, no, that was not good. You know, it's funny. I mean, Dusty had so much success booking in Florida and then booking in the Carolinas. And, you know, it was a very popular product up here, but it's almost like Dusty didn't get the Northeast. Yeah, he just it was it in that tour, too. If that show was at Memorial Stadium, you know, just a, a half hour up the road. Boom. You know, if that show is in. And obviously they did have one in Richmond, but you put that show in a, a, a different place. It's different. You run it outside Baltimore, you might get 50,000 people to, to, to pack you know, a Memorial Stadium at that time to see that show. But at RFK, it was just mistimed and you were just they were running the building to say they were running the building. And it's kind of what WWE does now in most markets where we're going to run the build building, you know, everything else be damned because we're the big thing in town where maybe you should run the second bigger building, you know, make more money, pay less in rent and sell it out. And they just didn't see that. I mean, look at Cincinnati from 86 is always the one that boggles my mind. You know, Memphis, I can understand, but, but Cincinnati, it's like, wow, even with a rainstorm, even with all that stuff, it's like, that was your advance for that show in a, in a city that you were pretty strong in. It just, Everything was just, it was too bad the money they got spent that summer. Oh, yeah, totally. And, you know, like I said, Dusty just overestimated, you know, the, the popularity of his product. And plus, if, if you're having a show at a big stadium, there's no need to go out and buy tickets in advance. You know you can just walk up. And if you're walking up and the weather's not good, you just feel like doing something else, ticket goes unsold. Where where they ever going going, Dada? We got David Cole coming up. Yeah. Where's all the traffic? No, no, no. Come on. Come on back, people. Oh, man. What, what was he in, in Washington? At least I, I agree with I agree with Mike about uh, Delbert and Clinton, especially the bluesy stuff. As far as Jesse Coulter, I thought it was a guy until 10 seconds ago. So that's what I knew about <laughs> Jesse. Coulter. That's, yeah. Uh, so um, One thing I'm going to piggyback on what, what Mike said, like I get what WWE is doing now. It's an image thing. They're just not going to go to a secondary building in a market. It's either the big building or they're not coming. Speaking of the secondary building, I didn't get to mention my favorite, which is, and to, 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 get ready to laugh, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Worker Hall, the IBEW Hall in Waltham, Massachusetts. Dude, I love that building. I it absolutely is magnificent. love that building. Perfect lighting. They and they don't have actual individual seats. They have these like these uh, bleacher things they push over and they go straight up. Every seat's perfect. It goes like and, straight up and down. It's like a it's like a pit in a, a basketball or a college basketball. Yep, arena. actually, that's a good description. It's like the old Curry uh, Hicks cage kind of has that same feeling uh, back in uh, UMass in the early days. And just for honorable mention, I have to put it in the Webster Town Hall because where else can you see Sandy and uh, Raven fight into the comptroller's office <laughs> and have some old woman chase them out? I mean, I that's so that's, price, that's the price of admission right there. I am so jealous. You guys had clubs in your towns. I didn't get that. We didn't have that down here, even in, you know, back in the, the 70s. I mean, there were a few, but for the most part, it's like they ran the Baltimore Civic Center. You come down, you run the Capitol Center, maybe the Salisbury Youth and Civic Center. And, and maybe there were some high schools, you know, Dorchester or something like that. If you were on the eastern part of the state or maybe a Hempstead, Maryland or, or something like that. But for the most part... You know, outside of maybe Frederick, Maryland, they seemed to hit that there, you know, when they were going out west, going out to Pittsburgh and stuff like that. We didn't have those opportunities. We didn't have a North Adelsboro, you know, it, it, it cool stories and things like that. We just that was the one thing about the territory down here for everything we got in as big of a war zone as it turned into with everybody descending upon it in the 80s, you know, to run shows. We just we weren't that lucky when it came to those, you know, quaint small towns that, you know, from from show to show. Oh man, I can't tell you how many t how many different venues I have seen pro wrestling in, like ice arenas, high schools, you know, Jack Witchie's in North Attleboro, et cetera. I mean, I, I it's probably well over a hundred, probably maybe closer to two hundred. That's what I did back in the day. I, well, WWF's 
within a driving distance, I'm going. Gardner, Mass., I'm going. It doesn't matter. All right, on to question five. Matt Brown, which form of female wrestler pre-1990 would you like to see wrestle now during the current women's revolution? The honest answer is none of them. I mean, there, there is such a gap between what the female wrestlers do now uh, and what they were doing back in the 70s and 80s. Um, I, but if I, if I had to pick someone, Leilani Kai was a really good worker, and so was Winona Littlehart. And who knows, maybe they could have stepped up their game. Uh, it's a completely different world, obviously. If they were you know, 30 or 40 years older, maybe they would have fit in. But, I mean, there's just a huge gap between, and I'm talking not, you know, uh, Japan women, but the women in WWE and AEW, I mean, they are a thousand times better than the 70s and 80s women. Sean, what do you think? Well, I, well one I would say is Wendy Richter, because, I mean, she had it. Not even just the wrestling ability. I mean, she had that kind of charisma thing that you just didn't see back then. At the time, looking back on it, you're sitting there, you're just thinking how is Moolah going to get her? Because you know this isn't going to last very long. She's just She is different from the rest of them. So I think just from charisma alone, because she definitely had that kind of a knit factor. Uh, the other one I made note of, for a reason that you had said, was because there's kind of an athletic jump, at least in the American side of it, was one American who seemed more athletic than the others was Velvet McIntyre. Velvet McIntyre was, was on my list. She was like my number three, and I'm like, okay, I can't name three of them. So she but, was really good. Yeah, I thought her stylistically would have fit in better uh, in, 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 you know, in today's product than it did back then. But uh, the first one that jumped out was Wendy Richter, because I'm still curious to see what would, what would have happened if, say, she stayed the face of the women's division for the rest of the decade, which was possible. It was possible, but I'll tell you something. Um, Wendy Richter, you know, she had a big 1984. Uh, but when they got rid of her at the end of 85, I mean, she had really cooled off. Um, it almost seemed like it was a Wendy Richter fad in 84. That was had already cooled off, I think, heading into WrestleMania. And the problem with Wendy, like after the Moolah series, where, you know, first you have Wendy versus Moolah, then you have Wendy versus a Moolah protege is where do you go from there? Where do you, how do you build up someone as a contender for Wendy Richter's title? How do you keep doing that? And they, they were not able to get the job done. Mike, what do you think? Oh man, I don't know if she falls into the timeline, but with Sherry Martell, she would count into that. Would she not? Yeah. She debuted in what 80, she was in the early eighties when she debuted. So I think, even though she was not a big name at the time, and even though she really was not, you know, in, in the mix as far as one of Moolah's women or anything like that, I think with what we know about Sherry Martell, with her drive, with her uh, ability uh, to to entertain, her charisma, her gutsiness, the, the, the ability to try and to do anything, I think it would be her. I think it would be the one I would take and want to see updated. Could she keep up? No. Uh, would she have enough personality and, and guile and, and ways to work the crowd where, you know, some of the athleticism of today, she could kind of put her boot on uh, on the necks of that a little bit and slow those people down and, and get herself over? I think she could. And I think more than any of Moolah's women, although of those women, Leilani Kai, I think is a good choice. I think Velvet McIntyre, you know, she was... She was good. You know, I, I, again, I, I, I haven't seen tons of her and most of it has been, you know, just off of videotapes from, you know, the time where they had a lot of features of uh, uh, Despina and, and, and who else? Uh, Winona and, and some of the other women that, you know, when they were constantly using them, that's about the only time I had a chance to see her. But she was very good from what I remember. So I, I guess I'm going to go Sherry. And I think as a, if there's a long shot one, and I don't know if she counts either, but. Luna Vachon, who I know her career was just kind of starting, and I know she was breaking out in Florida. I guess that would have been around 80, around 83, I guess around the same time, you know, joined up with Kevin Sullivan and everything. I think just for the same psychological and, and professional makeup of what made Sherry Martell awesome, that dedication, that drive, that that ability to, to not be one up by anybody and to try anything, I think Luna would have been one I, I would take and, and want to see today as well, too. Luna was someone I looked at and I thought she had tremendous potential 
And they just could never figure it out with her. Like when she came to the WWF, I think it was in 93. I'm like, okay, I see her being a big star. And it just never, it just never happened. I like both Luna and uh, Sherry on this question. I didn't think, I was thinking uh, Sherry wasn't going to be before 90, but you're right. It was a little bit before. Uh, Luna was ahead of her time. Uh, I, I think they would have an easier time figuring out what to do with her now than they did then. Same with Sherry. I think she was so far ahead of her time, they didn't know what they were doing with, with They didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, I don't know if something got in the way or if, you know, something happened behind the scenes. But, you know, Sherry as a baby face at this point versus Lumina as a heel just made way too much sense. And it, it was almost like they were, were too conservative. They didn't want, want to really cut Luna loose. And, well, what you got was a dud feud. And our next question, number seven, we will go to uh, Jesus again. Is Jerry Jarrett really a bad payoff promoter, in your opinion, or very comparable with the others? Well, before I answer that question, let me say this. We're not running out of time, but I don't think we're going to get to every question that was asked today. We will answer all of the questions that were put up on the Facebook group at some point. So don't anyone worry that you know your question is not going to get answered. Uh, just maybe not tonight. Um, was was Jerry Jarrett really a bad payoff promoter? Yes. I mean, that's just the way it was. I'm not saying anything bad about Jerry Jarrett, but payoffs in Memphis were historically, historically were awful. And guys went there, especially like after the mid 80s, they went there for experience and exposure. And I knew guys in the 90s, they would save money. Uh, they would move to Memphis. And when they ran out of money, they went home. You know, you went there and you lost money. And that's just the way it was. And, hey, no one was forced to work there. You know, it, it was one of those things where if you wanted to break into the wrestling business and you wanted either the WWF or WCW to notice you, you went to Memphis, you went through it. It was a tough lifestyle, but a lot of guys eventually got jobs. But, yeah, Jarrett was never a good payoff promoter. Sean, what are your thoughts? He must have not have been that bad because he had a bunch of guys who were stuck who, who stuck with him for years and years and years. Here's the thing: it's it's what the type of product you have. Who are the best? Real quick question, John: Who are the best promote uh, payoff guys usually? If you ask the guy, the boys, uh, Vince McMahon, uh, Bill Watts. Even though the guys always felt like they were underpaid, same as Eddie Gra- Eddie Graham. Uh, oh, I- Vern was a good payout guy. Oh, uh, Bosch. Was a good payout guy and okay. Mushnick. Yep. Okay. The last three I'm interested in. Vince, because he's in New York. You're going to draw bigger receipts. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have you have uh, you have you have Bo- uh, Bosch. You have Sam. One town, one show. Of course, they're going to pay off well. They just have the one show they get to promote to the whole time. And then uh, Vern used to run half a year. So again, of course, his payoffs. You're talking about in Memphis. Vast majority of his business is these smaller towns they'd have to go to. They only had the mid south once, you know, once a week. The biggest part of the business was going to all these other off towns, which just because they're smaller arenas, it's going to be a smaller check. I mean, that's same thing with Watts and, and all these other places. If you have to run three towns, you're going to make less money, um, less money per check. Overall, you may make as much, but as opposed to just doing St. Louis, where you come in for one spot and make it a massive paycheck. Yeah, because he doesn't do that all the time. But the WWF historically, before the Hogan era, ran really small towns. And, you know, the wrestlers were all dying to come to New York. I mean, what it wasn't small just, town? What small town? North Attleboro, yeah. Massachusetts. Once how, a many week. People, how many people are in North Attleboro, Massachusetts? Uh, like 20,000. What were the ticket prices? Oh, like two, three, and five, I believe. Okay, so that would be on par for what they would be doing, you know, in the hills or something like that, too, around the same. You know, your kids might be free, but that would still be around the same thing. They would be charging like a a hazard Kentucky or something, correct? That sounds about right. I think probably Kentucky, you would think, would charge a little bit less, but North Alabama had to run once a week, so they had really low prices. Yeah. But, I mean, my point is, like, not every show the WWF had was that, you know, every fourth Monday in New York City, they were still running a lot of small towns. They ran Nashville, yeah. New Hampshire. They ran Portsmouth, New Hampshire. 
Portsmouth, New Hampshire is 60,000, 70,000 people. Nashua, New Hampshire is about 80,000 people. North Attleboro is a difference, but even that's 30,000 people. You're not getting these kind of places in East Tennessee. I mean, there's a couple of them, but not like this. You don't of have course, suburbs you have bigger money from. in you. Yeah. yeah the, the suburbs you don't have to draw from. And, and that that that's true. And I think, too, also, it comes down to what's what's important to your life. And I think we, we see that with the Observer Hall of Fame when we see Ole Anderson, who's going to be uh, put on as a, as a singles in 2020. Uh, the Andersons didn't make it, and and they and they and Wilbur Snyder get hit for the homesteading thing, and it's like, wait a second, if you don't have to go all over hell and God's creation to make a living, and you're making money hand over fist by staying in the same place, why wouldn't you do that? And Bob Armstrong has always said, you know, he went up to Minnesota one time and said, "Ah, the hell with this, I'm not coming out of the southeast <laughs> again." Austin Idol is a great example of that, and sure, there was the flight issues too, but it's like you know the same sort of mentality where. If this is what you're happy with and you're making enough money to pay your bills and you're good with it, cool. But and I but I can understand completely why guys would come out of places or, or travel nationally and then have to stop in that kind of place and see those payoffs and and then maybe have them be a little less than you wanted them to be because you're Jerry Jarrett and not Don Owen or something like that. And, and I could see why that place would be somewhere where you absolutely wouldn't want to go, even if it's relatively unfair to the people that are there. One other, one other side about this that I, I always, whenever you hear about the payoff thing, the next thing you're going to hear is the travel. And you will hear very specific number, uh, l- numbers about the travel. I bet you anything that they would not have minded the payoffs as much if the travel, like the notoriously horrible travel in Mid-South and Lawler every five years complaining about the spot towns. You know, if it wasn't for the monstrous travel they had to deal with, I bet they wouldn't complain about the checks as much. No, to- totally not. But here's here's another point I have to make. I mean, I'm thinking about the Memphis Territory. They ran the Mid-South Coliseum once a week. They ran Louisville once a week. They ran Nashville once a week. They ran uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas once a week. Evansville, Indiana once a week. These are not tiny tank towns. Those are all over 100,000 people. Louisville is like a half a million people. Nashville was a reasonably late development. Yeah, Nashville they really didn't, was, yeah. They but didn't get you, into the East until the later days. But you can't compare it to, to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Newport, Vermont. I, I'm just, it's, you're, you're talking, they're, they're running all, you know, I, you, yeah, but you're talking at the absolute lowest. You're comparing, like, to Portsmouth. These are towns that, WWF didn't run there all the time. Nashville. No, but the, I mean, but, so you're, these are spot shows you're talking about against the main shows in the Memphis circuit. But if you look like Sunday through Thursday, the WWF primarily ran, you know, smaller towns. I mean, you know, granted, the Northeast is, you know, has a large population. There's really not a lot of farmland between Boston and and and, uh, Baltimore, but they did run small venues. Yeah, they also ran Boston. They also ran Philly. They also ran Trenton. They also ran Jersey City. Uh, You know, these are these are big towns and usually pretty, as you just said about the Boston Garden, good crowds. And that was a secondary show for them. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. But my point is that that Memphis didn't just run small towns. And at the the end of the day, it was not a big money territory. Uh, No, no, it wasn't. I mean, as far as compared to New York. No, I think that's where we're at is the fact that if you bring in more money, you're going to be a better payoff guy, a better payoff person. If you're running one show a month, then yeah, I would hope you're paying off well. The bottom line is, if you're in business for 40 years, you're paying somebody okay. Yeah, but I mean, compared compared to Florida, Mid-South, Georgia, AWA, WWF, I mean, pretty much any other territory out there, Memphis was a low-paying territory. I have heard Jack Briscoe wax poetic on the thriftiness of Eddie Graham and many of the Florida guys, too. So it depends on who you're going to ask. But right, but the bottom line is, guys didn't leave Florida to go work in Memphis. They left Memphis to go work in Florida. Yeah, and they had a bunch of guys in Memphis that didn't go anywhere. Bill well, Dundee was, was there forever and drew money there. Dutch Mantel was there for a long time. Well, let's be honest. You, you do what you can get away with, too. Or at least yeah. some people will do what they can get away with. Because look at the Dick the Bruiser and Sam Menneker stories of, of, of being in 
in Indiana and how they would use Mexican wrestlers. And if they didn't like it, how interchangeable they could be. Nicholas, you know, again, on the other end of the state, you know, how they, you know, same sort of thing. And I think it's just a matter of if you can sell yourself, you know your worth, you have the ability to go in there and swagger in there and get yours, you know, and, and you obviously have to be at a certain level in your career, I'm sure, to do that at that time with a Jerry Jarrett or something like that. But you got yours, you know, Jerry Lawler and and obviously uh, uh, Fargo weren't complaining about what they were getting, you know, it was just other people. And, you know, it was one of those things, if you sat there and you continued to work there and complained about the payoffs, you know, at some point, is it you? <laughs> you know, why didn't you leave? You know, especially, you know, at that time. And and many people did, and they would complain about it later on. But, you know, if you, you know, wrestling was one of those businesses, too, where, you know, you could, local guys could get abused all day long. But there are some also times where, you know, you actually had to go take it upon yourself to keep it moving and, and to not go to places like Kansas City and places like that. And if you were always stuck going to the Kansas Cities and the, nashville's and places like that of the world well maybe it was just you that is true maybe you just didn't have the talent to make it in you know new york the awa georgia whatever and that's why you're in memphis that's why you're in kansas city well and this is this is going to sound like a, a dick thing to say but like you know an example is like rick mccord or 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 you know somebody like that where it's like you know, Buzz Tyler, uh, Vinny Valentino. It's like, you know, you'd be enhancement talent. You're jerking the curtain in mid-Atlantic. But, you know, you go to a Portland who's who's on its ass or you go to a Kansas City who was perpetually on its ass and you stand out a little bit more. But, yeah. you know, that just may be your peaks. <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, you're you're sitting on the bench playing 60 games a year for the Boston Red Sox, but you're a superstar in Pawtucket. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you got time for one more? Kind of got away from they put the payoffs there. So Jerry Jarrett got out of that one, and he got in the Observer Hall of Fame, so he, he's laughing right now. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, the wrestlers would talk about how Jerry Jarrett and uh, uh, Jerry Lawler were living in mansions, and they were living, you know, six guys in an apartment. The other wrestlers, but you know, that's you know, sorry, you're not Jerry Lawler. I don't know. But anyway, now, you know what, Sean? I, I don't think we have time for another question. But like I said, we will get to every question that's on the Facebook page. It may not be next week. It may not be the week after. But we will get definitely get to them in a timely manner. Um, Mike Sempervivi, thank you so much for coming on the show. And by all means, plug your show that the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network provides for us. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, and I hope we can change back the favor here, too, because we got a lot to talk about, including some comeuppance that I want to give you over whether Magnum TA would have had a hot 1987 as the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. No heat had fallen off Magnum TA. I, I can't believe you said that, however many episodes away uh, that it's been now. But between that and telling you why you were wrong about the Brooks Robinson-Mike Schmidt debate, we'll, we'll save that for, for another time. Hopefully over on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast. And I see one of the questions on Facebook that's going to be coming up. You only had one of the Classic Territories TV show to watch. What would you pick? Of course, that would be Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, as seen on the WWE Network, because if you get the WWE Network and you start watching those shows or find somebody like John McAdam who's got tapes of those shows from, from the past, you can follow along with us on the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast, Roman Gomez and I, every single week. Except for last week, we, we, we had an audio nightmare. So, uh, But usually every Thursday, which will be Friday this week. So once you get done with this show, go over to midatlanticpod.com. Check out the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast because every single week we review Mid-Atlantic Championship wrestling episodes. We started in 1982. We're up until February, uh, into February right now in the NWA World Tag Team Championship Tournament. Uh, that ends up being very, very jinxed, but it just got off the ground. So we've started to cover that and we try to add a little bit of context to what's going on at the time as well, too. Uh, for example, Leroy McGurk's uh, promotion, which was on its last legs out there in, in the Midwest, out in, in Arkansas and Oklahoma and, and, and Missouri. You know, uh, George Scott is now out there right now who owns a, a piece of Maple Leaf Wrestling, you know, longtime employee of Jim Crockett Promotions. Yeah, we talk a little bit about his territory, what's going on out there, and how he tries to salvage it with with old Mid-Atlantic guys, and and just some things like that. We try to add a little bit of context to the episodes and give some history 
about what's going on uh, at the time these shows are, are airing in, in the wrestling world. So uh, those were a lot of words right there that just say go to midatlanticpod.com or midatlanticpod anything, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that sort of good stuff. So thank you very much for having me on, gentlemen. Uh, definitely appreciate you being on. Of course, I would be happy to return the favor. And yeah, I remember getting the wrestling magazines in 1982 and wondering just what Jimmy Snuka and Paul Jones were doing out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening and tune in next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vox. Go Vox.